Welcome to $6.99 per pound. We have a whole brunch situation happening. <laughs> a great big story today. Lots of rosé. So if you hear some clanking and chewing, we're literally having brunch inside here. Uh, but it's a beautiful day outside, so it's perfect. Um, but you guys know what it is. We interview leaders and professionals from a wide variety of careers and lifestyles, just like the diverse food options found at a Korean-owned hot food deli. This week, uh, Jakey is away. Feliz cumpleaños. It's his birthday. He's in Mexico. Happy birthday. And so Julie Young, uh, who made a special appearance on the Malik Yoba episode, she's back stepping in for Jakey. <laughs> and we have such an amazing guest today. But before that, I just wanted to quickly shout out all the fans that have supported us. Uh, Thank you for following, liking, and sharing on Instagram. We've been noticing kind of a booming of our numbers lately, so we really appreciate every single share, and we see all those posts and we share in our group chat, so appreciate you guys. Feel free to screenshot if you're listening, post it, tag us, and we'll reshare. So keep that coming. Um, and we read all of your comments, so please keep leaving them. But without further ado, I'm going to have Julie take it away to introduce our amazing guest. Um, I'm super happy to be sitting in today because I'm super interested in hearing from our guest. Um, Dr. Manuel Garcia Garcia is the global lead of neuroscience at Ipsos. Which is a, what is Ipsos? Oh, <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, it is a, a global large market and opinion research company. It's, it's French, it was founded in the 70s, and now it's like 90 countries. Wow. Okay. He also so, has the best voice ever. I know, so right? okay, You're welcome, you. so listeners. I love you guys so much. <laughs> Um, Dr. Garcia Garcia is also known for his thought leadership, shaking up the industry on various fronts, including mobile ad effectiveness, cross-platform advertising, multicultural marketing, and other applications of neuroscience to consumer research. Um, Dr. Garcia Garcia developed and delivers curriculum for a course in consumer neuroscience for NYU, and he was the author of the Neuroscience Consumer Research Textbook published by MIT Press. Um, in addition to all of this, you are fluent in how many languages? Like three languages, at least. World traveler and a triathlete. Yes, he's super buff. So basically, in summary, like you're perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, it's done. We're done. We're done. Okay, <laughs> yeah. No, and um, just talking to him uh, very briefly, we even have some colleagues in common. Um, at CNN, we have a huge ad effectiveness team where we try to understand brand lift studies, ad effectiveness, um, eye tracking. I feel like a lot of that probably have been influenced Emmanuel at one point because he's done work for Univision and um, a formal colleague who was a super high up guy at CNN now works with Manuel at Ipsos. They sit on the same floor. So he's just an industry leader all around. Wow. Really exciting. Super impressive. Also, when I was at the uh, the Advertising Research Foundation, yeah. I had a lot of exposure. So that's why like whatever research we would do for the industry. Mm-hmm. My job would be to well to do the research, but that was like very yeah. minimal part of the job, and then just like evangelize. Yeah, so and it was like all translating about like networking, the and, and the, that institution has a lot of visibility. Yeah, um, let's take a step back though. Can you just mm -hmm. first tell us? I mean, we're going to ask you about consumer neurosciences, but tell us in a nutshell what neuroscience is. Neuroscience. Uh, neuroscience is this, this study of, of the brain on the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. So there are like many, many different branches. So I came from like undergrad in psychology oh. and my PhD is in... Mm, in me too. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so my PhD is in, in neuroscience on the cognitive side. So you will study um, the central nervous system and the brain activity to understand cognition. But you, there are a lot of different varieties of within the study of neuroscience and my PhD of neuroscience I had different courses that would go into like biomedical composition, oh chemical composition or uh, endocrinology uh, and genetics and everything that impacts the central nervous system. Okay, so then what is consumer neuroscience? The consumer neuroscience would be applying 
um, all this knowledge about how the brain and the central nervous system works into understanding consumer behavior. So it would be on one side understanding that knowledge, but also applying all the tools that we have to measure um, emotional responses, emotional reaction, brain responsive, cognitive responses to to understand decision making and ultimately um, consumer behavior. I think my work now goes a little beyond the consumer because in my company, there's also a lot of research about um, about opinion and public affairs, oh. which I think it makes it also a little bit more exciting. Um, but, but consumer neuroscience would, would focus on, on using neuroscience to understand consumer behavior. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. So was consumer neuroscience a, rel- a, a known thing back when you were studying? It, was it it's something new that has developed over yeah, time? Yeah, did it become a thing? Yeah, it was definitely not a thing. When I was in, in psychology in undergrad, there was something about psychology of marketing mm-hmm. oh. that I took, and I was like, this is so different from everything mm-hmm. else. But no, it was definitely not a thing. Even when I started teaching in 2014, um, there was no material. I had to make it up. There were very few schools teaching anything of that kind. Yeah. And and in fact, I, I partnered with this guy, Moran Sir, from, from Northwestern University to create the first textbook. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely not a thing. I think it's, it's sort of all still becoming a thing. Yeah. <laughs> the first uh, startups that, um, that were applying those methods to consumer research uh, came up in, t- in 05 and 06. So it didn't get to the academic institutions until very recently. Mm. What is, I don't know, this might be too long of a, the answer might be too long to this question, but what is the difference between, um, and I'm probably going out of order, right? But the no. difference between like marketing research just in general and consumer neuroscience research? So consumer neuroscience, where consumer research is studying everything around the consumer and consumer neuroscience just applying neuroscience to to study consumer research. It's, it would just be part of it. So mm-hmm. it's a part of... It would be part of like consumer research. It's part of research, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so when I was teaching at Stern, I was part of the marketing mm. MBA, um, of the MBA program. So it was part of marketing. Yeah. So the closest thing that I can relate to my world is that um, at our company and a lot of different companies, they have like an ad effectiveness team Mm -hmm. where they would commission certain pieces of ads or content that we made for our client, aka let's say like PNG for example, like we will do like eye tracking testing where we see the consumer, we show the ad to them and we track their eye movements, I guess, or even um, I'm sure there's technology where they measure like the waves or and yeah. it, it's we can share it to the client to be like, hey, this is the emotion that they felt. This is the attention that this grabbed. Um, and that helps um, the sale and helps prove to the client that like they paid attention and we made an impact in um, getting your brand to be positively associated. So is that something also that you've kind of helped frame or commoditize, I guess, so other companies can utilize neuroscience? Yeah, actually, like mm-hmm. the beginning of, of neuromarketing and consumer yeah. neuroscience was very focused, and it's still very focused on, um, on ad effectiveness and advertising effectiveness. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's also almost becoming mainstream, I think, now, and, and many big companies use it for um, their creative evaluation and their creative optimization on the regular because, um, you know, on top of, like, getting the emotional response or whatever, you get that emotional and cognitive response second by second. So it's just oh. not, like, this is good, bad, or somewhere in the middle. But it's it's about during these two seconds, people are confused. So you can cut it out and increase effectiveness by X, Y, Z percent. So that's, that's, being, that's almost mainstream now because the value is very obvious because, mm-hmm. you know, it provides a lot of value that you could not get otherwise. Um, I think now the challenge, and one, one of the challenges in my job now is we, we have, and we're developing really cool things around ad effectiveness, but that's one out of 18 um, focuses of expertise within the company. So mm-hmm. the, the challenge now is like, how do you apply that to all the other as well? Yeah. And that's actually the fun part, because it's a challenge, but also the opportunity, because um, everyone in, in this industry is very focused on just advertising. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and advertising is super widespread. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, so should we go sort of to the genesis? Yeah. Manuel? So this is a very complicated 
I, maybe I'm making it complicated, <laughs> but like you know, neuroscience. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if there's any kids who are like, I want to be a neuroscientist when right. they grow up. <laughs> to want to be a neuroscientist yeah. that 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 happened later. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the, I think the first weird thing was like sort of wanting to go into psychology, and then it, everything everything sort of flew. I think there was something. Um, about like growing up in Spain in the 80, 80s and, and early 90s, which there was like this huge shift in society because the dictator died in 1975, and we're coming from a like hyper-conservative society where like human uh, women had very few rights, and you know all the all the fun stuff. Homosexuality was mm-hmm. uh, criminalized, and uh, very quickly the society changed and sort of grew up with that change. I think I think that sort of sparks. Uh, wanting to to understand society and understand human behavior. So actually, when I was in high school, I was I was a geek and I was like very good in maths and physics mm. and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So I had to go into engineering because that's what smart kids do. <laughs> but well, I mean, I didn't have much family because my my parents didn't go to school. They didn't have the opportunity to go to school past middle school. So it's oh, not wow. like they. I think they they would hear. People go to engineering, and it was just like sort of the track that I had to take. Oh, really? And I think did, did they push you to be more academic, or were they kind of like do whatever you want? No, like, I mean mm. they, they don't know the academic world, so they mm-hmm. like I, I don't not sure they really know what I understand fully what I'm doing. Yeah. But definitely, when I was in the academic world, they uh, they understood it less. So no, I, I, absolutely no pressure, just mm-hmm. more. Mm. Well, you know, you would hear this kids is smart and smart yeah. kids do engineering because that's what people say and mm-hmm. that's about it. But no, no big pressure for my family. But like at some point in high school, I think I did an assignment for biology on development or developmental psychology. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, and then I started exploring. And psychology was not where what um, smart kids do. Mm-hmm. But it worked out pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> What um just to go back a little bit? What's your family makeup? Um, but like brothers, sisters. Did our, you grow up with two parent household? No, my my parents are still together. I'm the youngest of four. Oh. We have three brothers, three brothers and one sister. Um, like growing up, we grew up in, in an apartment in like a neighborhood of Granada. Granada is a beautiful city in the south of Spain, and so the, the three brother the three brothers we were, we were in a tiny room. Like my two brothers had a how do you call that bunk bed? Yeah, bunk bed, and then the other one, and then my sister had a bedroom for herself. Mm. <laughs> Princess, <laughs> wow. Yeah, and then at some point we moved into like a big house with a pool. Uh, when I was fifteen, I hated it. I liked the apartment, and I didn't mind sharing. Mm. <laughs> I'm such an apartment person. Yeah, over me too. Houses. Um, so did just also curious? Did the rest of your siblings are they all as learned as yourself? Um. Uh, we're all doing fine. My brother, one brother's a lawyer. He's doing fantastic. The other one works for a bank since like forever. Um, my sister didn't finish college, and she's been working for the local newspaper for for a very long time, and then organizing events and everything. So she's doing wonderful, and now, now she became a, an influencer at forty. Oh wow! Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, she had a lot of followers, and she's always like invited to things. Um, to fancy things in Granada. Mm-hmm. So she's living her best life. Nice. Wow. Yeah. I love it. So other than Spain, I mean, you also studied at the Bulgarian Academy of Sciences, National University of Singapore. Yeah, all kind of random. Oh, yeah, so it's very <laughs> global mindset. And I think it, 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 studying neuroscience and that psychology and like applying like globalism to it of just like the biases of countries or different peoples, um, how did that impact your studies? Were you very purposeful in going to dif- these uh, p- places because there were different attitudes and challenges? Yeah, I think there's also like something about understanding societies there and understanding different, you know, dif- different communities. Yes. Um, and and all, yeah, always my choices were were kind of random because when I was in grad school, everyone would go mostly to a university in the UK or Germany, or if you possibly can to the United States to do. Any any kind of collaboration, and I decided to go to. So I had to go first somewhere in Europe to mm-hmm. get um, some European mention on my PhD diploma. 
which nobody cares about, <laughs> but my boss was very strong about it, and I was like, that's cool. <laughs> uh, so the year Bulgaria joined the European Union, I was like, <laughs> Bulgaria counts? Great. <laughs> you count. <laughs> and there was something that I wanted to do uh, to, to find like a group that's good in brain oscillations and, and uh, decomposing brain electrical activity into different frequency bands and do a fancy analysis with that. Wow. And I found a group in Finland, one in Austria, <laughs> and then oh this these two people who are like super smart in a very old school uh, institution in Bulgaria, because it's, it's like a, an institution from, from the communist times that were, was literally run down, like the mm-hmm. windows were broken. Oh, gosh. There was a sign trap house. at the course, like, don't stand here because it's falling. <laughs> there were dogs living there. It was, oh ter- it was, it was really interesting. Oh my that these two people were like wonderful mentors, super smart. Um, so it was a great experience, but yeah, it's pretty random. It was like, I have these three choices, so I'm going to go for the least um, common. Mm. So I've lived in Germany before, so Austria was not that appealing. Yeah. And Finland is just not that appealing. It's, it's cold, no? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's cool, but you know, yeah. I don't want to go cold. Yeah. And were the institutions very different in terms of, like, even just, like, the academic, how they're run, how they're governed? Did you experience different kind of workings of that? Like, were people different in Singapore? Were people different in terms of their academic approach? Um. Well, I, I, I don't know much about the institution of the Bulgarian Academy of yeah. Sciences because I didn't meet anyone. Oh, <laughs> beyond, but your mentors. Beyond my group, beyond uh-huh. my mentors and my two, and there, there were two, two co-workers. Um, and then in Singapore, I was at the National University of Singapore and where my group was led by a German lady and a Canadian man. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It was like very different because you work in your group and you do your research. So I, I didn't have to deal with mm, the um, politics or anything with any politics at all. Like even in Singapore, I did. I did not even have a visa. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I was there, a tourist leaving the country every month and coming back. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Wow. Um, so you also received this extraordinary doctorate award while you were at Barcelona University in recognition of your premier scientific achievements. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm always very proud of that because I think like within the department, um, one of the doctorate works presented gets that award. Wow. And I, th- like, I think late, like now in my life, 10 years later, it does not have any impact. Nobody cares about that. <laughs> but I don't think like ever, because my department was psychiatry and psychobiology, and I was sitting in physically in psychology, and then there was a part of the other half of the department sitting physically in the medical school. So they will always get <laughs> mm-hmm. get that award. Like, we would never get it. Mm-hmm. And and then I got it. And was, and so I was, like, really, really proud. That's why I keep it in my biography. Great. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that's great. Amazing. That's amazing. How long did it take you to get your PhD? Like, from how many years? Four. So, four? yeah, I remember wow. the conversation with my boss. Wow. Um, we we get paid for four years. Uh-huh. And I remember my boss said, you're going to finish in four years because everyone would take longer. I was like, I'm paid for four years. <laughs> I, can, I, <laughs> I cannot, can't afford. Yeah, to, I cannot eat yeah. at all. I mean, it's not. I couldn't save with mm-hmm. the, with the scholarship. I was like, I'm gonna finish when I finish oh receiving my mine. God, and goodness. that's. I mean, and that's what happened. So I had. You need. You needed to have at least one publication accepted. Mm-hmm. I think I had one that I sort of donated to a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, what she, does that mean? Well, she, she was like an author, and she when she presented because she was going to take some positions, she had to present mm-hmm. before she had one accepted, and, and I was uh, I was early on, mm-hmm. and I had time to to publish, so I. So I, I gave it to her to use it. I was the first author, but she used it as that publication. Okay. Um, but I had a couple of works uh, accepted by the time my scholarship was ending, so I was like, and now I present. <laughs> <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I think the last paper from my PhD was published last year. Mm-hmm. So there are some things that were some things that I was working on um, in the coming years when I was at NYU at the medical school. But there are something that that got hanging there because I started working in the corporate world and I didn't have time. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had to capture slowly later in life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. So that's how academia works. Yeah. Very slow. So how did you go from um, academia to like uh, contributing your knowledge to the corporate sector? That's a I like that question. Mm-hmm. So when I uh, when I was doing, when I was in grad school. 
you know, I had my crisis at some point. I was like, this is the cool, this is crisis. fun. Mm-hmm. The, the mid, um, <laughs> the young life. The quarter life, the young life crisis. Like, this is really cool. How does this apply to life? Because I was working on basic research. Like, what, what is this useful for? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I wanted to go into more clinical research, and I did. So when I, when I was at NYU, the medical school, it was more uh, clinically focused research. But, but by that point, I sort of wanted to, to go into something more applied and faster. Yeah. And so when I started NYU, I... Uh, I founded a, a, a club, a consulting club for people oh. from medical mm-hmm. and academic um, Geek club. areas uh-huh. you know, that wanted to move into yeah. into business. So there oh. were there was a lot of like people who went to BCG, McKinsey, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that club's still working because oh, I cool. see it on on LinkedIn, oh. like the group's still active. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so, yeah, that's really you cool. You founded it. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. It's, it's, yeah, I'm actually proud of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, during that time, I think my, my scholarship was ending at NYU. They were not going to renew. Um, it's, I did not have a green card by then, so it was kind of like more challenging everything to find someone who sponsored me or, um, or stay in academia. So it was, it was kind of more complicated. But I was looking into living academia for real. It, just, it was just harder. Yeah. And... And yeah, so I had been talking to a startup that was called Neurofocus for a while for a position here, and that would kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed. And I knew people in that company, and then I was dating someone and living with someone at that time. We broke up, and then the next day, <laughs> no. so like they had an opening mm. for real in San Francisco, and I was like, uh-huh. uh, God, not I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is there like a research that you can share? Maybe that was like um, something that you've, through your research, you uncovered something um, that was unexpected about a viewer. Ah, we've been doing some some nice work recently on um, understanding what's the impact of, of the mood of a consumer, oh. first in behavior, like in shopping behavior, but also um, on how you perceive advertising. So there's like a couple of things that we've done where we um, have a group of people going through positive or negative stimuli and then have them um, naturally go into a shopping experience and see how that, that impacts their behavior. Mm-hmm. But we also did something really cool for uh, during the World Cup this past mm-hmm. year where we would test some ads, like World Cup-oriented ads, um, before the World Cup started mm-hmm. and then after the first round in different countries. So that was Mexico, Argentina, UK, and Germany. And we were fortunate enough that mm-hmm. <laughs> two of those uh, countries passed oh. and two of those countries didn't pass. So oh. we could actually compare oh. the mood of the crowd, the crowd being the whole country, mm-hmm. uh, when they are exposed to, to those ads. And it was really interesting. I mean, you could you could expect that... Um, if they won, they that if they do, were right? going ahead, the, the increase in, um, in emotional engagement to those ads was, was higher. But we, could, we were able to determine which were the creative elements just because of the granularity, like having access to second-by-second second, uh, resp- brain responses. Uh, so which were the, creati- the creative elements that capitalized that, uh, that impact of the mood. That mm-hmm. were there was a lot of like national elements in that. Okay, wait. Can I ask a question here? Of course. So and it might be stupid, but how did you have that second by second information? Are they hooked up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, we use uh, electroencephalography okay. EEG. That's okay. uh, that's where I did my PhD with, mm-hmm. and that consists on locating sensors on the scalp, and Whoa. from there, when the new when the neurons communicate yeah. by electrical impulses, so when when a number of neurons on the cortex in the surface right. are firing at the same time, mm-hmm. that voltage is strong enough to reach the scalp, and it so can be captured. Cool. So, oh my god! So cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but like this is something that's not new. Like, um, right. but Hans Berger in 1928 captured brain electrical activity from outside. So at this point in time in history. Um, we know how to translate those those brain waves yes. and that electrical activity into cognitive and, and emotional processes, and also control for the noise because that voltage is very small mm. uh, compared with an eye blink, a movement, whatever. So now now we're pretty good at at cleaning that out, increasing the signal, and understanding what it is. And that um, that activity is captured 
generally the standard is 512 times every second in each one of the channels. So you every you have a second. lot of granularity. Wow, that is yeah, crazy. I think we normally, That's crazy. I think we normally like uh, extract the data per half a second. I think I think second by second is probably good enough. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think we need to distinguish half a second in a creative. Um, but yeah, so that's a level of granularity that did not exist before, so it opens a lot of possibilities. Wow, very cool. Mm -hmm. um, should we move on to the your current role at Ipsos? Sure. Although you know what I'm curious about. So do you like yeah. watch ads while you're like you yeah. know watching? Like last night I'm watching March Madness, right? And some of the ads are so bad it's not even funny. And then some are so good, mm -hmm. you know. And I and I not knowing anything about advertising, you know, be like, how did this get past a room full of people? You know, yeah. like do you? So when you're just chilling out, like and you're watching ads, can you like? turn it off and like not really analyze an ad that you see or, yeah. or like kinda, what, how does it work for I kind of like analyzing because they're like very very basic things that you see after testing a lot of ads with this they're very basic creative um, executional Decisions. things that, that are very clear and I, I think it's I think it's kind of hard to to, to not, not think yeah. this is bad. People are confused. We don't know what it is. We don't know what the message is. Mm, that person should smile or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like it. So do you even talk to like producers and creatives and present your findings? Um, yeah, sometimes a we normally work for the client directly and the client, um, the client is the organization that's paying us. But we do a lot of work that's on earlier stage of the creative development, and that's a big collabor collaboration between the, the creative, the mm -hmm. agency, uh, the client, and the research experts, who is us. And we, d we do an exercise that's, that's really cool because it's, it brings us all together like a whole day where we bring a group of people, like 50 people. They're exposed to um, early stage part of the process, like animatics or storyboards or whatever. Uh -huh. And they see those, and they are also some connected to um, to a sensor that captures their galvanic skin response. So it's just like a tiny wristband thing uh -huh. with two sensors in the fingers. Like they absolutely forget they're wearing that after 30 seconds. So in the back room, we are sitting there with the client and with the creative, and we're seeing in real time what's the response of that audience to the creative. Wow. Sort of like second by second, so that's really cool. And then after they've seen the creative, they ask them some questions and they have a remote control and we see those answers in real time as well. Mm -hmm. And then a subset of that sample goes into a focus group. We have seen where they respond to in the creative execution. So the moderator can use that information to, uh, to dig deeper and to extract uh, more insights on, on how they process the creative. And then at the end of the day, with the creative and the client and everything, we discuss everything that we've seen because we got all the results in real time and we were all there. So I think that's a, a perfect exercise because it brings us all together. Yeah. And it's not like the classical old way of um, evaluating ads that creative um, agencies would, would hate. That's like this is approved or disapproved. Mm. That's yeah. So, so cool. yeah, it's really cool yeah. to have every, so cool. everyone, everyone together. And it also like provides insights that the creative might appreciate yes. and, and discuss and yeah, interpret. Sure. So it's cool. Yeah, that is really cool. I think I missed my calling. You missed <laughs> your calling. This was your calling. I should have been a neuroscientist. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late. You're yeah. Right. Um, yeah, right. Totally too late. But um, okay. So, do you want to talk briefly about your role at Ipsos? Sure. What does Ipsos stand for, if anything? Uh, it, I think it comes from like ipso facto. Oh, okay. In, in Latin. Okay. It's, it's not an acronym. All right. I thought it was an acronym. No, it's not. Um, okay. So you're the global lead of neuroscience there. What What does that mean? What yeah, mean? actually, I was appointed a month ago officially. Oh, That's congratulations. Crazy. Thank you. <laughs> and also, like, when you are, like, out at dinner parties or cocktail or, like, on dates and, you, and they're like, what do you do? Like, it you depends. Yeah. If, if, uh, you know, if I want to... If I want to impress and I, I go a little farther, oh. if I just want to get out of the conversation, I'm like, marketing. <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So how would you explain your role at, like, a cocktail hour, you know? I'm just like, oh, applying brain science to, to human understanding. I moved to, like, talking about consumer research into human understanding. Yeah. For two reasons. 
One is that's like what my company does. It's not only about the consumers, it's also about the citizen and understanding societies. And oh. the other reason is that it sounds a lot sexier. Mm. Oh, yeah. Right? The latter is very Human yeah, understanding. Human really understanding. Yeah. Are they like, do you understand me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, people, but people, when you when you go to undergrad in psychology, people ask you that forever. Oh, yeah. right? oh that's so true. Like, like, are you <laughs> analyzing me right now? Yeah, you're psychoanalyzing me. Yeah, no, for sure. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow! So, is marketing neuroscience? So you in that, but Ipsos before anything is a marketing company. It's not like a neuroscience company, right? Correct. Yeah, absolutely correct. Okay, so how does that dynamic work in your group with the the broader initiatives of your company? That's a great question because yeah. I think I think um, I mean, Ipsos is like kind of late to the neuroscience party, which oh. I think it's good because mm-hmm. I guess that we learn from from the industry failures, yeah. and then I come from other parts of the industry. Yeah. But the way we work and the, the way my, my role works, it's very different from, from, from other competitors because in some places you would have a unit that sells neuroscience for everything. Yeah. <clears throat> so you don't really have an expertise on everything you're selling. You have an expertise on neuroscience. So the way we work is that we have actually 18 different uh, groups of expertise, so one being... Um, creative evaluation, but that's one of 18. So oh, that's, wow. one that's public affairs, um, like product development. They're like a lot of things. Uh, so my role is working with all those groups to um, insert the neuroscience tools when it fits and when it provides value mm. into the services using their expertise because they're experts in their thing yes. with my expertise. Mm. So I don't I don't compete with them. I don't sell anything. I just develop things mm. with them. So it's really fun because I get to learn uh, like across a lot of different yeah. fields and and I, I get to create things, which yeah. is really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That oh, and awesome. also I'm, I'm the global lead of neuroscience, so I'm like the face of yeah. neuroscience for my company in conferences and media and stuff. Oh, and also the implementation of whatever we create. Uh, so we work in 90 countries. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're going to focus this year in like 16, I think. Um, my team does that implementation. So we, we go and train people and support people so their countries can um, implement those, those services. And that's, that's a way to, to be able to scale because we have a huge company, so mm-hmm. we can leverage that. Yeah. Wow. So do you get to travel a lot a whole because lot. of this? Oh, what a dream job. That's really awesome. Yeah, I'm happy now. I think at some point, I guess, um, traveling gets tired. Yeah. Because, well, that's what people say. But so far, I'm very happy. Mm-hmm. I also just go to very cool places. It's, no complaint. Yes, mm-hmm. I'm seeing on, on your Instagram page. <laughs> <laughs> like, totally jealous looking mm-hmm. at it. I know. Ugh. It's like, oh. Um, that's amazing. Again, that was your calling. I know. <laughs> In another life, God. what Jules would do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so amongst all the travel you teach, um, mm-hmm. you were saying you have to fly back and um, or just make sure you're teaching every Wednesday. Did you develop this curriculum yourself? And yeah. how did you choose, like, the sil- how did you construct a syllabus to create more value for your students? Yeah, good question. Um, I'm I'm not sure I remember how I did that. Because <laughs> when I... Were you drinking rosé then as well? <laughs> Probably. No, I joined the this the corporate world in October 2012. Mm. And it was like first half of 2013 when I met the head of the marketing department at Stern. And then we had lunch and then he suggested like maybe I put some thoughts together. But like my experience in, in market research was very limited uh-huh. <laughs> to... Do that. So I'm, I'm trying to think if I could. I probably. Well, I guess I consulted with him to do yeah. something that was that was valuable. But it was like my students probably know more because it was uh, part-time MBA. So all, everyone had more years of experience in the industry oh. than I would have. <laughs> so I was like, gonna make sure I provide the value from as a neuroscientist, and and that's what I did. I put together a syllabus. Uh, I don't remember. I think just like out of my my thoughts and consulting with him. Um, what would be valuable? It was uh, six credits, so just um, six weeks, three hours a week. So it wasn't super long, but I had to come up with a curriculum and with the material because there was no, there was mm. nothing. Mm, so I would yeah. like find articles that I think would be relevant, and develop content that I think would be relevant for their jobs, based on my job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, that's how it happened. Um, I mean, you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but why would you say it's important now? 
I think it's important now from a competitive point of view because we have, you know, like we, with with anything that came from from technology, you have the possibility of getting an extra layer of insights on the behavior of your consumer. Um, and you don't do it, you're in a competitive disadvantage. So I think that's, that that makes it very relevant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's like the biggest <laughs> the biggest point. Yeah, I feel like in the future, like almost, I don't know. It kind of seems like a neuroscientist could benefit any company, you know, whether it's consumer related or not. Yeah, like, <clears throat> and and it's it's sort of happening. You see a lot of companies that are hiring behavioral scientists, neuroscientists, even administrations um, having behavioral science departments. So that that's happening. Yeah. I think the the White House had one before. There is a question that we wanted to ask about the ethics of the research. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not sure if it relates or not, but I mean, there's a lot of stereotypes when we package consumers, at least from the media side, when they say the Hispanic market, you know, the Asian American market, the black market. They say, you know, for example, a black consumer uh, watches like 50 times more TV and it's because of blink, 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 or there is a danger of kind of stereotyping if it's not carefully vetted. How does neuroscience play into that? Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> that's a funny one because I remember yeah. when the when the industry found out that there's diversity within Hispanic and yeah. that we are not all Mexican. Yeah, and I was like, wow, that's what? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it's groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you're all, a worldly person as well, who's lived in different cultures and stuff like that, and it's everyone behaves differently. It's not a monolith, but. Um, when you're studying and bucketing these consumers um, by their behavior, how does the ethics come into that to make sure whoever's packaging it out to the market isn't kind of tempering with it to promote a stereotype? Well, that's a problem of, of, of segmentation yeah. rather than the neuroscience. If you're mm-hmm. doing a study in which like your segments um, might promote stereotypes, it'd be like as negative as, as if you're doing something with no neuroscience mm-hmm. and using segments that, that promote stereotypes. I don't think we have. Um, well, I think it's, it's important to, to highlight first that there are no races, mm-hmm. <laughs> that Homo sapiens sapiens is one race. Mm-hmm. And the brain is a brain. And the mm-hmm. brain is a brain. Mm-hmm. And they, even if, if you want to categorize in terms of brain by, by ethnicity or by group, it's much more related to culture and to your, um, you know, where you grew up or whatever yeah. than, than it is like if your skin is darker or lighter. So I think that brings uh, a little bit of reality to, yeah. to all this crazy polarization that we are living, that we are a lot more similar than, than we're not, and that our brain is actually shaped by our experience and not and not by the color of our skin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think I think in that sense it it brings some um, some good positive narrative and and just like actual reality on how right. <laughs> how humans are. Um, but in in terms of ethics, I think the big risk. Well, there's everything about the like, personal data and whatever, but that's all covered by uh, institutional review boards. That's all all controlled on everything neuroscience research related. The the big risk is to misinterpret the data mm-hmm. and then just say things that are not right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and <clears throat> when when all of these started to be commercialized, mostly like small companies, they had to sell, and sometimes there's a stretched reality uh, mm-hmm. way too much. Mm-hmm. And when big companies started getting into this and trying to, and also academia and trying to make things a little bit more sober and more close to reality. It was a challenge to educate the industry that all of those things uh, that they had heard were maybe a little exaggerated. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of responsibility from from the industry to, to the market and and to the general population to and also from the media mm-hmm. so to not exaggerate and be, uh, be rigorous about brain functioning. Yeah, so what is an example of an exaggeration? that you were like, oh, no, that's not what I said, or that's not what the data says, but they're like, well, this helps us sell. So they exaggerated, mm-hmm. just like in the market. Well, there was there was one one situation that I had with, with a client in which someone, I'm obviously not going to name, nope, nope. Mm-hmm. Was, was trying to sell that with, with brain activity. While someone's running, you can capture the exact moment of the running experience so you can help develop a perfect shoe. 
So obviously you're capturing electrical brain activity, which is a tiny voltage. If you're running, that's that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's not gonna work. Uh-uh. They're not gonna. And, you know, it took some time to have to go back to a client and say no. Mm-hmm. no. Yeah, that's <laughs> not how it works. Yeah. Yeah, that was challenging. Yeah. <laughs> well, one real-world example of the ethics thing I remember reading about was when Facebook was testing. Um, uh, their newsfeed to like select group of audiences mm-hmm. where they would see how can um, showing certain content on the feeds affect people's mood or showing negative things like negative um, status updates or negative mm-hmm. news you know how does that influence the user and inversely you know when we have happy things and happy videos and happy statuses only how does that influence the user but i remember it was unethical to a lot of accounts because a lot of these users weren't aware that they were being tested so there are certain companies that may abuse well uh, that's yeah. a, that happens a lot in yeah like everything you work in digital right yeah like mm-hmm. everything every test in digital is like in the real world a b test yeah. i'm gonna try this today and this tomorrow and i have mm-hmm. results today yeah. from now yeah um is that ethical you think would in your opinion of just because if, if it does indeed um maybe create more depression or i know instagram especially right now is kind of controversial because amongst younger kids you know they have like uh, lower self-esteem or oh my gosh like everyone mm. is living their best life and like I'm not good enough or whatever and uh, is that ethical in that do you think it's ethical I guess that's my question I don't think it's mm-hmm. unethical to do research to understand uh, mm-hmm. and then once you understand that you're impacting mm-hmm. like the, the the life of kids negatively and inducing depression you can take some action to fix that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't do research, then you cannot not understand. I think I think doing research for to understand human behavior is always good. And then what you use it for, that's that's what can be um, like a company can be held responsible for or should be regulated by the administration. But but doing I think doing research by itself it's good because mm-hmm. otherwise we just need to to stop the wall and stop development and not do anything in case it has a negative impact. Yeah, and I think research is good. Yeah. So does any advocacy come out of ne- the neuroscience findings? Kind of like hey, like from these findings, um, we're noticing you know this encourages like positive behavior or this in- this increases like happiness or something like that. Is there and you advocate a say in that? Because my knee-jerk reaction would be, let's say, you know, test doing this research and stuff mm. like that, and we do find, oh, it does create more depression within teens. Is there, a, is there a responsibility to hold these tech companies accountable to be like, hey, like maybe you're um, unintentionally creating like negative emotions and blah, blah, blah. These are the things that we're finding. You know, we recommend that you balance the things that you're pushing to your user or something like that. Yeah, well, I think mm-hmm. I, I think there is responsibility and I think they are they are held accountable. You know, when there's something when something I mean, let's talk about Facebook in the past 2 years. Yeah. Like everything that comes out they're being held accountable and they have to to come up with solutions just if if only for their own survival because the public opinion uh, is critical for for social media survival. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's already happening. Mm-hmm. And if something needs to be regulated it should come from the administration, but they are normally uh, slow in regulating any new technology. Talked about like certain governing bodies or like organizations that regulate, and um, even in your field, but also outside of your field mm-hmm. that you relate to. And, and an example that you gave about like you know making sure your client isn't misinterpreting the data. Yeah, I think that's or, very important. Yeah. So, um, how much of that responsibility is on the person who um, conducts this research, or are you kind of like passing forward the research and then? Other regulators have that responsibility to reinforce it. Well, we are we're a research company, so we yeah, mm-hmm. uh, we take the data and translate it into insights. Yeah. So if if something is misinterpreted, it's our responsibility, hundred um, um, percent. Mm-hmm. Within the consumer neuroscience industry, there are uh, governing bodies like <clears throat> like even SMR or the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association that have developed some code of ethics mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that you know you are expected to follow. But but yeah, like if, if a research agency is m- misinterpreting the data, it's absolutely our responsibility. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Which yeah. we do not do. Yeah, <laughs> no, they're perfect. <laughs> because we have good people. Yes, yeah. So where do you think this the whole industry, consumer neuroscience, which was in 
not even a real term back when you were first getting into it. Where is it going right now? What's kind of the future? Yeah, that's a great question. So very recently in a conference in Peru, um, at a panel, someone asked me, what's the future of neuromarketing? And I thought, I think the future of neuromarketing is to die. Because, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. like it started like, oh, now we're going to use neuroscience tools for consumer research. Yeah. And that's great. But now it's, and now it's sort of becoming, well, some of it is becoming mainstream. There was a lot of skepticism. Also because some people stretched reality. But now we're at a point in which there's credibility, there's understanding in the mm-hmm. industry, and we have the tools. There was a point where... Um, agency, research agencies came out as this is going to substitute everything and revolutionize and your sense going to, I heard someone say Save on stage, um, neuromarketing is going to solve the conflicts in the Middle East. So <laughs> oh, pe- people wow. would say like legit wow. very crazy stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but we're at a point that we're like past that and even like many clients say this is fantastic. Maybe now we're missing things that we used to do before, mm-hmm. <laughs> like normal qualitative yeah. research to interpret these very granular, ex- yeah. excellent data. Yeah. So I think we're at a point in which the future is to take these tools that are available that are now becoming very scalable and that people understand and, uh, and believe because they understand and just use them when they fit together with other things where it fits to mm-hmm. provide the highest value. So it would not be... I think it will not be an industry by itself, mm-hmm. that it would just be part of the toolkit that we use for mm-hmm. um, for understanding consumers or for understanding citizens. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you some brain questions? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, like, is... is So I've heard or read that um, your brain kind of can, like, replenish... I'm not going to use the right terminology, <laughs> but like cells or neurons or whatever. Is that true? Yeah, and it, it's not that that long that we know that in the hippocampus, I mean, you're generating um, neurons and brain cells during development, and then it was thought that then, that then it stopped after like the end of development by the age of like 18 or whatever. Um, but now we, we generate uh, brain cells, we generate neurons in the hippocampus where we create um, when we form new memories. Okay, and what are some things we can do to keep our brains healthy? I was going to ask that. Yeah. Yeah, they say like every every cognitive exercise, it's like exercising any any different muscles. If you keep mm-hmm. uh, your brain active in terms of like play Sudoku, Sudoku, like meditation, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, or any stuff like that. Any any like cognitive exercise that that keeps it active, it's um, it's good and also prevents uh, the development of dementia. Mm-hmm. And what about sleep? The impact of sleep on your brain. Um, well, the impact of sleep in the importance like, of like regular sleep. I, so I've read many times over that regular good amounts of sleep are is sort of like the most important thing for good health, but also particularly when it comes to your brain. Yeah, I know that this this like fascinating because it's like the REM sleep that, mm-hmm. that we all know about, but it's like really fascinating because your brain is active like you're awake. That's yeah. when you're actively dreaming, and your eyes are moving like crazy, mm-hmm. and and it's not very clear why that happens because mm-hmm. it's it's kind of odd that you're sleeping, your brain waves are very slow, 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 and then they go crazy, and then this is slow. slow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's been found that it, that that's very important for memory consolidation. Mm-hmm. So whatever you've learned. During the day, during that mm. period, I think maybe we are like forming these new connections to consolidate and whatever we've learned that day. So that's um, that's crucial. It's also necessary. So if you, you don't have a, a good sleep, your 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 attention mechanisms are, are going to be impaired. Mm. Wow! Because there's so many like self help articles now about how to trick your brain into thinking yeah. blank or. Um, you know, people with anxiety or maybe people who, you know, have insomnia or something. Like, how to trick your brain into blah, blah, blah. Like, are those, do those actually work? Oh, and there are tools for... So there's something fascinating, this neurofeedback. Mm. And it's sort of controversial. There are people that would say it doesn't work. Um, so it comes from biofeedback. So biofeedback is when you're aware of your, of your heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And so if your heartbeat is going faster, you see a signal on the screen. So you can sort of try to control it. And that helps with controlling anxiety. So if you do the same with like bra- with some levels of brain activity, uh, would be and it's it's been applied for for kids with with ADD. Mm. So they would be hooked to electroencephalography, 
So they would have some sensors, and then it would be a game. And when they are capable of concentrating, mm. um, something happens in the game. You know, they, they score a goal or whatever happens. So they learn how to do that with their brain oh. that is concentrating. Uh-huh. So there's, there's a lot of like further developments of that that yeah. is neurofeedback, which is really fun. And there's an app um, oh. with a like very low-class EEG headset band mm-hmm. <laughs> that teaches you how to meditate. So if, oh. if, you, if you are like, it, it's actually, I think the, it's like a landscape. And if you are like thinking a lot, it's like cloudy and windy. And if you can clear your mind, oh, wow. it, you know, it gets, it gets sunny. Oh, what is the app called? Muse. Muse, okay. Great. Muse. That's a gem right there. Yeah. <laughs> right, so we have some signature 699 per pound wrap-up questions that we ask every guest. And uh, I'll ask the first one. What is your or has been your most significant relationship in your life and doesn't necessarily have to be romantic and why? I think I'm just going to keep it to, to my family mm-hmm. just because my life has had very different periods. Mm-hmm. And that's like the only constant, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, also like very good friends. But, you know, like I've, I've lived in many places and done very different things. And they're the only constant element in my life mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of gives you stability that they exist yeah. even if on the other side of the pond. Yeah. Um, and what is your personal mantra? I, I'm going to steal a quote <gasps> for yeah. that from, from this Irish thinker and activist, uh, Bernard Shaw, that said, uh, life is not about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. That's amazing. That's perfect for 699. Honestly, right? no, it's totally. so true. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and joining us. Um, you can find Manuel uh, Garcia Garcia. Okay, so it's at Manu underscore Garcia Garcia to see all of his beautiful travel pictures. Yeah, because I'm an Insta loser. I need followers. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> my sister is an influencer now. Yes, I know. Because you guys can share audiences. If she can share us too, that would be great. Um, you can also find his recent publications on the journal Advertising Research and PLO, PLOS1 plus one. Um, and you guys listen to 699 on all podcast streaming platforms, Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Anchor FM. And make sure you hit the subscribe button to be the first to know when a new episode is released. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, 699 per pound for the latest shenanigans that we're up to. Amazing. Fun. Hey, yo, that's righteous. Hey, yo, it's 699 per pound. Podcast. Meow.